As we open the Word of God together, we are in a bit of a mini-series on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, answering a number of questions about things related to Christ's Lordship. And before we can delve into the matter of how and what and why the Bible preaches Jesus Christ as Lord, we need to ask ourselves a number of questions, and we've been doing that in this series. The first question that we ask is, what is faith? What is faith? We spent a great deal of time talking about faith, and then we ask, what is repentance? What is repentance? And we realized that repentance is turning away from our sin, and with faith and repentance, we are able to see Christ for who He truly is. That is our conversion, our conversion. However, in order for us to ask what is faith and what is repentance and what is sin, the third question that we've endeavored to answer, we, as it were, take the veil from all of God's inner workings from eternity past to answer the question, how do we get out of our sin? How do we rid ourselves of our sin? I read for our scripture reading that long protracted chapter, Ezekiel 16, with such such awesome and sober, solemn words about Israel's sin, likened as unto a baby who was strewn by the side of the road to fend for herself, and how God cleansed such a baby from their blood filthiness, and how God took care of Israel even as Israel grew, and every level of maturation that Israel grew Israel spurned the Lord, her God, and God continued to show kindness and mercy even though He was judging each successive generation of Israelites because of their wantonness, because of their prostituting behavior, because of their whorings, and God was still yet merciful even as He judged them because He let more generations live, even though they didn't honor Him. And then, of course, you know in the latter part of that chapter, God says, I will continue with my covenant love, even in the forgiveness of sin. And that's why I chose that particular chapter to read to us, because The only way that you and I can rid ourselves of the sinfulness of our life, from our vantage point, we see it as faith and repentance, faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin, and that is what we are to do. We commonly call that conversion, conversion. But do you realize that there is no way to be converted to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance on our own? with our own uh, power, through our own merit. It's impossible. 
You say, why? Because the Bible teaches us with regard to the doctrine of sin that every person in the world, man, woman, and child, from the day of their birth to the day of their death are totally depraved, totally wicked, sinful through and through. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are as sinful at every single point in our life as we possibly could be. God actually retards, generally speaking, all of the sin of the world from being the worst it could possibly be. But you know your own heart, and I know my own heart, and that is when we were born, and as we, in our maturation and development as a human being, live our lives, we're sinners. And we develop, let's say, the fine art of continued sinning every day of our life. And that's what the Bible teaches. And when Christian preachers talk about a kind of, of salvation, a kind of gospel call that you and I need for which we then would be commanded to express faith and repentance in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've got a problem on our hands. But because of our depravity, because of our sinfulness, because of the wickedness of our heart, we have actually no capacity to respond rightly to God. None. We're in a hopeless condition. We could never on our own, with our own power, place our faith in Christ and repent of our sins, turn from them, because the Bible teaches us, and we'll look at it in a moment, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible teaches us. And because of that, we have no inward capacity to respond to the goodness of God, to respond to His offer of the gospel. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't, Doesn't Jesus say, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. The offer's there. The plea is there. The command is there. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, Jesus in Mark 1 declares right at the beginning of his public ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. You say, well... The problem with that, if you've said the Bible teaches the depravity of mankind, we have no no opportunity to respond to the gospel because we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. So so how do we respond to such a message? And and is that message to everyone? And, And here's a little theological lesson for us all. When the Bible commands us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that's that's a legitimate offer. That's a legitimate call. We might call it, for lack of a better term, the gospel call to faith and repentance. The gospel call. And it's a general call to everyone. Every single man, woman, and child in the world who's ever lived or who will ever live, the gospel call, this general call to salvation, the call to believe and to repent of your sins is for everyone indiscriminately. It's for everyone. That's why I can stand here as a preacher and I can look out at all of you and say, repent and believe in the gospel. It's a general call. And it's a call that everyone must respond to. 
But then when someone says, hey, but wait a minute, how do you then put this this general call to salvation, to repent and believe, alongside the doctrine not only of total depravity, but also the doctrine of spiritual inability. We're not only depraved, wicked sinners who have no hope of repenting and believing in the gospel, but we're also spiritually in an inability position because we're dead. We have no spiritual life in us. We come out of the womb speaking lies, the Bible says. We're like the, the fire that the sparks go upward. Uh, we go upward in our sin even as we mature as human beings. We have no capacity to respond. We have no light in ourselves. We have no ability. We have all the sin that we could ever grapple with with no response whatsoever. We're like a spiritual corpse. No stimuli, nothing from the world, nothing from the inside of us, and even that gospel call to believe and repent will not penetrate the hardness of our wicked hearts. You say, well, that seems pretty unfair. We're we're commanded to believe, we're commanded to repent, there's this, this wonderful graceful gospel call to all people to repent and believe and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and to say no to your sin and to believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. And that call goes out indiscriminately to the whole world, but we have no capacity to respond to it. That puts us in a no-win situation. except for this. And I started answering this question last time, and Lord willing, I'll complete it today. And that question is this. What is the doctrine of regeneration? What is the doctrine of regeneration? You can even tell by the very word itself what it implies. It's a, it's a generation. It's a it's a divine life that, that comes into me, onto me, and, and it gives me new life, new birth, a, a, a resurrection, if you will. And that's the only hope. That's the only hope that you and I, as vile, wretched, sinful people, are ever going to be able to see Jesus Christ in all of His glory all of our affections to glorify Him, all those songs that we've just sung, the hope of heaven, the hope of no sin, no sorrow, no tears, a life of of utter faithfulness, a, a life of bliss, a life of happiness, a life of worship, a life of grandeur. This is this is the only hope. Regeneration. Creating someone anew and afresh. So that, so that their eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped and they, they hear what you might call not just the general call to salvation, but an effectual call. A, a call that's not just hearing something, but a call, a special call, an efficacious call that hears the actual truth of the gospel with ears to hear and eyes to see. 
and you say, let me, let me find out more. Let me hear more about this. Well, let me do that for you. I've shared some passages last time with you, and then we had our wonderful Christmas musical with all those blessed children, and now we're here to talk about some other passages on this matter of the doctrine of regeneration. Now, I've said before and I'll say it again, the doctrine of regeneration, the biblical doctrine of regeneration is something that you might not find in the Bible by that word itself except in only a couple of places. And one, it's not talking about spiritual regeneration, it's talking about a regeneration of the cosmos, uh, of the planet, of our world, of our earth. The only other place is mentioned, and we'll go there uh, in a little while, and it uses, spiritually speaking, this word regeneration, regeneration. And I'll explain it there, and we'll see it there. But what is there by one word in that text is all over the Bible with other synonyms. You ready for those synonyms? New life, new life, being born again, born from above having a circumcision of the heart, cutting away the flesh of a person so that they can be renewed, regenerated with a heart of life and love, with a heart of of the confession and forsaking of sin and a request for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for my sins. New life, new birth, a, a kind of spirit and love that God bestows on us like he talked about in Ezekiel 16 with his covenant love. And we'll see about all of these things as we go along. And I'm going to try to go really quickly, but I want you, even if you can, write these verses down, try to get with me in terms of not just writing them down, but getting with me in the Bible, turning to these very Bible passages. If you've got a paper Bible, if you've got an electronic Bible, if you've got an iPad, if you've got a tablet, do some scrolling this morning, would you? And I want you to turn first with me in John, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is the first place I want to go to talk about the doctrine of regeneration. New life, new birth, being born again. And of course, this is very famous for us, John chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now here's what's so very interesting to me. If you read through the whole of the Gospel of John, you're going to find, like we did at our Christmas Eve service, the idea of light, the light to see, the light to dispel the darkness. And Jesus says that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, you cannot see spiritually the kingdom of God. You won't gain entrance into heaven. You won't be a Christian. You won't be born again. You won't be a blood-bought 
believer in Jesus Christ. You won't see the kingdom of God. And you notice that phrase there, unless one is born again. You see, as I do in my ESV Bible, an alternate translation that says, born from above. Born from above. I actually like that particular phrase better, born from above, because it teaches this truth. And this is what Jesus was trying to tell Nicodemus. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ unless you are born from above. Now, pray tell, I ask you this question. Born from above. Can you and I do that? Do I have any capacity to be born from above? First of all, I'm not even above. I'm not there. What what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in no uncertain terms is that if you ever want to see the kingdom of God, you must have a birth of sorts, and that birth has to come down upon you from above. Can that not be any clearer? You have to be born from above. And Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? He doesn't understand. He he thinks that Jesus might be referring to something like being born again uh, as though you have to be born a second time physically speaking. How can I be born when I'm old? Uh, Can he, the person that Nicodemus is thinking of, like himself or others, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice before, he said in verse 3, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now he says in verse 5, cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you see that see and enter mean the same thing. And he says, again, truly, truly, that means I tell you truthfully, I'm giving it to you straight, here's what God says, here is his word, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, capital S, from the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that, verse 6, which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is physical will remain physical, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born by the Holy Spirit becomes spiritual. So Nicodemus, if you do not have God's birthing mechanism come true for your life, you'll remain physical and therefore you'll remain in your sins. But if you have God's born-again life implanted in your soul, then you'll become a spiritual man. That's what he's saying. And someone might ask the question, well, wait a minute, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. What's the water there? Well, some have suggested uh, that water might be referring to um, baptism, water baptism. Well, we know that that cannot be the right interpretation because if someone is born from above, 
nothing they do on this earth is going to avail of anything, whether it's water baptism, whether it's giving money to the church, whether it's walking an aisle, whether it's praying a prayer, whether it's reading your Bible. Spiritual salvation, the salvation from God, bringing us to new life, regenerating our souls only comes from above, right? So it can't be water baptism. That's something that you and I do. We, we get down in the water. Uh, that's not what Jesus is referring to. And even Nicodemus himself thought, well, perhaps what Jesus is saying is that I have to actually be physically born. So maybe Jesus is actually talking about that time when I was first born physically, uh, that time that I was in the amniotic sac. Maybe, maybe that, you, you got to be born physically, and then you got to be born spiritually. So here's the twice-born person, one who's born physically first, and then the person is born spiritually. And that may sound pretty credible to some, but that's not what Jesus is referring to. Because how obvious would it be for Nicodemus and you and me to say something like this? Well, Jesus is teaching that you've got to be born physically. Well, how obvious is that? Anybody who's born is born what? Physically. Let's not insult our intelligence here. He's not talking about physical birth. He's not talking about water baptism. Jesus actually goes on to say in verse 10, Jesus answered him, answered Nicodemus directly, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? What things? The idea that you have to be born from above, that you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Jesus goes on to say in verse 7 of this chapter, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from, a, from above or born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit because he says... You have to be born of the Spirit. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he likens the Holy Spirit to wind. And, And the wind blows, and you can't tell where the wind is. Now, you can see the effects of the wind, right, rustling through the trees. But you don't know where it's going. You don't know if it's up or down. You don't know if it's vertical, if it's horizontal. Uh, You can see the trees rustling. You can see them going up and down. And you know the wind is there, but you have no idea what the wind is doing nor why. And what he's telling us is the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, determines who shall be born again. The Holy Spirit. So now the veil is being lifted behind us. It's not just you and me calling for someone to repent and believe in the gospel. That has to happen, and that's a general call. But this is an efficacious call. This is an inward call. This is a spirit-wrought call because the Spirit would be working in a person's heart to bring them to new life so that spiritually speaking, they can hear such a gospel call. They can hear, you have to believe and repent 
And it's like this for you and me, and perhaps it's been your testimony like it was with mine. That is, I spent a lot of years outside of Jesus Christ. I spent the first 18, almost 19 years of my life, and I heard the gospel call. I heard it. But then again, I didn't hear it. I mean, it was there. I mean, I was in a church. I heard a preacher preach. I, I, I had a Bible. I read it. And for me, it was the dead letter. The, the preaching, it, it never got through. I, I, I heard about faith and repentance, and I heard about you, you, you have to be delivered from this adulterous generation, and, and you have to live a, a crucified life, and you have to follow Jesus as Lord, and, and I heard it. But then again, I, I didn't hear it. it. It didn't penetrate into the, to the dead, depraved soul of my life until... I heard it. And how did I hear it? I mean, I'd heard it, but I never heard it. But how did I hear it then? Because the Holy Spirit of God said, it is time for you to be born from above. And my ears were opened. And my eyes saw the truth of my own condition. And that's what Jesus is saying. And then he indicts Nicodemus. Nicodemus, let me tell you, this is incredulous to me. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this idea of being born from water and spirit? And I can just hear Nicodemus, apparently not. And so if Jesus were here, undoubtedly, he'd say, well, my friend, teacher, Nicodemus of Israel, the teacher of Israel, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Don't you know this, Nicodemus? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Don't you see what I'm talking about with regard to water and spirit? You remember that Ezekiel 16? Live! Live! This is talking about the doctrine of regeneration, my friends. And Ezekiel 36 gives it to us. You know, this is, this is faithless Israel. This is Israel who's nothing but totally depraved. And they need a Savior. They need their Messiah. And they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And they need to be made alive. And, and that gross but realistic terminology is given about faithless Israel in Ezekiel 36, 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman and her minstrel impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations. That's, that's all those wilderness wanderings and all of those captivities that Israel had to go through. And they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and with their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. In other words, they were caustically saying, and you're the people of the Lord? Yahweh? 
Is that who your God is? The one who has to now banish you to the nations because you're faithless? But notice verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. I had concern for my holy name. What's he talking about? He says, I had concern for the fact that I and my name, which is representative of all that I am, all my character, all my promises, I made a promise and it is a promise I will keep. And, and, and it will be kept with the nation of Israel and perhaps not those to whom he's speaking at that moment through Ezekiel's prophecy. They're dead in their trespasses and apparently that's where they will find themselves forever and ever, but not every Israelite and not in eternity. He's going to keep his promise, but he's going to keep his promise to those for whom he will open their eyes to see it. And here's how he'll do it. Look at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, for the promises that I made, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And for what purpose, Yahweh? What purpose? Here it is in verse 23, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the personal name of God. Yahweh declares Yahweh God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, before the eyes of the nations. And then here's how he'll do it. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is a regathering of the Israelites into their own land, and here's how it will be. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now, do you see where Jesus was teaching in John 3 about water? See it there? I will sprinkle clean water on you. What does he mean by you must be born from above, you must be born of water and spirit? You have to undergo spiritual cleansing. Spiritual cleansing. You see, because all of that gunk, all of that trash, all of that mud, all of that mire, all of that filth that we would say is our sin has to be cleaned up, watered, cleansed, scrubbed. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. My beloved people, that is the doctrine of regeneration right there. And you and I can't clean ourselves up enough. We we can't scrub ourselves. We can't wash ourselves. And to use the Metaphor that's also used in the Old Testament, can a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? The rhetorical answer is no. I could never clean myself up. You can't morally reform yourself enough to be in right relationship with a holy God. So there's the water. And here's the Spirit, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. That's that's the only way to be born again is to be born from above so that God is the one who's doing the cleansing. God is the one who's taking his Holy Spirit and calling you not just with a general call but with a Spirit-engendered, efficacious call to the elect, to the bride, to the church, to the sheep. And that, that calling, unlike that general call, this efficacious call, this internal call, one you could call that, that general call the external call of the gospel. This you could call the efficacious call, the internal call. Whatever you want to say, whatever language you want to use, it's this. When God calls you to come and be with himself, it happens. Why? Because he's God. And he takes us in our sinful condition and he cleanses us from all our uncleannesses and he puts his spirit in you. And you want to see an illustration of this? Look at the next chapter, chapter 37, verse 1. Here's, a, here's, a, here's an illustration of all illustrations, my friends. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me. Ezekiel talking and now writing it down for us, praise the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord. There's the Holy Spirit. And he set me down in the middle of the valley. What kind of valley? Well, it was a valley. I don't know what kind. It was a valley. But I know this. This was no normal valley, because in this valley, it was full of bones. Dry, dreary, dead bones, which is emblematic of ourselves. It's who we are. In our sin, left to our sin, we're as dry and brittle as dead bones. And this is Israel. That's who they are. This is the illustration. And God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is saying, look, I want to give you this illustration that is powerful. Verse 2 says, And he led me around among them. The Lord told Ezekiel to go around and traverse in and through the path of these dry, dreary, dead bones. What was Ezekiel thinking? What's upcoming? Why is the Lord doing this? What's the point? So I I walked among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Let's say millions of bones, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, that was one of God's favorite terms for Ezekiel, and who later takes on capital S, son of man, the Lord Jesus. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Now, if you're ever in a Q&A session with the Lord, be careful. If he asks you a question, first pause, think about it. Because it may be rhetorical, and you may not have to answer it, and that'd be a good thing, right? Son of man, can these bones live? And I I answered the way you would answer, the way Ezekiel answered, oh, Lord God, you know. I don't know. You know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Now, if that isn't the most ridiculous thing, I mean, they're, they're dead, they're dry, they're dusty, there, there's no life in them, and God says, prophesy over them. For what point? They're inanimate, they're dry, there's no life in them, they're gone, it's over. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, and now you want me to talk to them? Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall what? Live. And do you remember that? Live, live, Ezekiel 16. Telling dead bones to live. And notice it says, I will cause breath. Do you know that the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word spirit is ruach, ruach. And it means spirit and it means breath. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. They're talking to the bones here. And put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I prophesied and there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. Bones rattling. Arkansas State University, 1978, 1979, six-month period of time. I started reading the Scripture. And through the instrumentality of the Word of God, by the very Spirit of God, within that six-month period of time, I started to live. Before that, I was, I was dry bones, dead, dead to my sin, dead to my life dead to all things spiritual, dead to all things kind, dead to all things loving, self-centered, sinful as sinful can be. But then there was a sound, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. What a sight! Bone to bone, coming together. And I looked, Ezekiel said, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, just like the Lord God had said. But notice, there was no breath in them. They weren't animate as of yet. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. That means prophesy to the Holy Spirit of God, Son of Man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. Now you know where winds came from in John 3. The wind goes where it wishes. And the Holy Spirit is that wind. And the Holy Spirit goes where He wishes. And the Lord God put the Holy Spirit, the four winds, and breathed on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And do you know that's yet future to us? 
Even to this day, it's yet future to us because there's going to be an innumerable army of Israelites and they will live even though they had died. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Here's the interpretation. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And this is, this is another metaphor for regeneration, and it is this, you and I were spiritually dead and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Is that true about you? Is that true about your life? I don't know. God knows. I don't know about you. Here's what I know. Those people who are spiritually dead and don't know they're spiritually dead think they're still alive. They're walking, talking, working, paying bills. And when you talk to them, they will have no part of you, no part of the gospel. You preach the gospel, you tell them about the gospel, and there's this general call to repent and believe in the gospel, and they look at you like you're from Mars. I don't, I don't, I don't want what you're selling. And Isaiah 55.1 says, Ho, come to the waters and drink freely. Come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and drink of him freely. The Bible's entreating us. And if you're spiritually dead... No response. And you could have heard that message a hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times. And what it takes is those dead, dry bones in you and me to come alive by the Spirit of God who regenerates me from being a dead man. Like raising me from the dead. Like Lazarus, come forth. Right? Lazarus be dead. He's been in that tomb. No, he's alive from a word, a word from God incarnate. Wake up. You're alive. And this is what the Lord is promising. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Oh, I love it when our God promises and then marks his promise, I will not forfeit my promise. It's going to happen. You say, just for the Israelites? What about us Gentiles? Can, can we get in on this? Oh, you better believe you can. And whenever it happened to you, it happened to me, 1978, 79, for you, if you are alive, and if you're hearing this message, and you're in your heart saying something like this, preach it, brother. Preach this message, brother. For my sister, for my brother, for my aunt, for my uncle, for my children, for my mom, for my dad. Preach it. And then you're praying, Lord, take the general call and make it for them an an efficacious call. 
so that as they are sitting here, new life is beginning to form. This is, this is the doctrine of regeneration. And, and could I throw up another word as we close in here that you and I need to learn from our theologians, our gifted theologians of the Christian world? Salvation is monergistic. Monergistic. Mono, one, energy, one energizer. And it's God himself. Don't believe anybody that tells you, well, I cooperated with God. I saw my deadness. I saw my spiritual plight. And I raised myself up from the grave. And I had my eyes and ears opened by myself. And I was able by God's cooperation with me and me with him to be born from above. Now, does that make any sense? Makes no sense from these passages. Makes no sense from John 3. Makes no sense from other places. And perhaps we'll go to one other place before we close. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Here it is. By the way, I have like 18 other passages in here. So it's obvious we're going to to go through this again next Lord's Day. Titus chapter 3. We can't. We can't just move on. This is way too important. This is, this is way too important for us, for all of us, for me, for you, because we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about loved ones. We're talking about people who we know need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I will say, well, come to Christ. Just, just come. Repent. And we should, and that's the call. But it has to be our Heavenly Father righteously and lovingly and graciously opening up their eyes to come. And, and this is the way Titus brings it to us. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. And this was our condition. This is like the gospel going out to you now. Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves, talking about Gentiles of course, but, but Everybody, every single person, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Well, that just about sums it up. That's us. That's the biography of our lives outside of Christ. Doesn't matter if you're seven or 70. Doesn't matter if you're a girl or boy, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. This this is our testimony, as sad a fact as that is. But what's the first word of verse 4? Oh, thank the Lord for contrasts. But when I decided to follow Jesus, when, when I got on my knees and decided I needed to be right with God, uh, when I gave more money to the church, uh, when I prayed a lot of good prayers, or, or so I thought. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He delivered us. And lest anybody be confused, not because of works done by us in righteousness. All the things I've just said and a thousand more things that you could be thinking of doing for God. 
Except that's not the way salvation works. It doesn't work with you and me doing all kinds of good works so as to be saved. Now, works are important, and this text will tell us that works are important, but it's after your salvation, not in order to obtain your salvation. And here's what it says. And he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own, what? Mercy. Mercy, 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 mercy. Because of his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. There it is again. Washing. It's the ever-flowing water of regenerating grace. Mercy. And not just that. but a renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's water and spirit right there. There's regeneration and renewal. It's not as though God just washes me up at the beginning and says, well, you're cleaned up now. I hope everything goes well for you. It's God's also major commitment to renew us day by day by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Day by day. And I know because I've said it about myself and you say it about yourself. Well, I've had three good days in a row and then I had two steps backwards. And it seems like the renewal is on hold for a bit. But God never stops. Even if you and I are failing in the moment, if you're truly His, it is because through that internal call of the gospel, we call it efficacious grace which is tantamount and synonymous with this regeneration. And my heart is regenerated. I get a new heart. The heart of of flesh is removed. I have a spiritual heart transplant. And God puts in this heart, not of stone, but of spiritual vitality. And that old flesh of mine, that old stony heart goes away And what's planted by God himself is a regenerating grace and a renewing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I love verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And for what purpose? Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, I tell you. Heirs. Joint heirs with Jesus in the hope of eternal life. Dear beloved people, as we come to close, how many of you have seen your life turned upside down by the regenerating grace of God in Jesus Christ? Perhaps you don't even know except for the very possibility that this morning your eyes were open to the truth and your ears are hearing the gospel for the first time truly and genuinely. Jesus Christ died. He died on a cross for sinners like you and like me and he gave his life as a ransom for everyone who would acknowledge their sin 
and who would say, I need a Savior. And since there's only one Savior proffered for the world, Jesus Christ the righteous, he's the only hope of eternal life. He's the only way out. He's the only one who will deliver us from our sins. And if, in fact, you've been hearing this gospel, not for the thousandth time, but for the first time spiritually, it's because the water of God's cleansing grace is pouring over you. And you're seeing your sin for what it really is, repugnant to his nostrils. And he will save you right now. Call out to him right now. Bow together with me. Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at this marvelous and monumental doctrine of regeneration, how my heart has been replaced with a heart of spiritual vitality and transformation. I convert my life by your grace and gift through faith and repentance, believing in you and turning from my sin and embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, Father, thank you for giving up your Son in sacrificial death for us. He died on that cross at Calvary, a violent death, willingly, voluntarily, so that I could go free, free of my sin, that I could be liberated from this life of depravity and debauchery. And I, I now, with faith and repentance, thank you for opening my, my mind, my heart to the truth that I never quite saw before. And my ears are open to such truth. And the Bible says, and faith comes by hearing and hearing a speech about Christ. This is the word. This is Christ you're hearing that he comes to save and seek that which was lost. And he comes to us and he cleanses us from all our filth and wickedness. And he says, live. Oh, Father, thank you for the living Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the written word of the gospel. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes such a word and such a Savior and he opens us to the reality that we can have the hope of eternal life. May it be so. And may not there be anyone here who walks out of this place without the assurance and the joy of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.